Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. In the next two programmes, I chat with veteran American radio journalist Francis Moriarty, who was a political reporter at RTHK Radio 3 for 19 years. He's recently returned to America. In this week's programme, Francis tells me about his childhood and family and his campaigns against the Vietnam War. My family background is, is a typical American sort of a mongrel mixture. My mother's side has been in the States. Uh, the French Huguenot people came in the early 1700s. The uh, German side came in the early uh, 19th century, early 1800s, and were German carpenters. And the family name was Buch. And the French side was named uh, Le Baron, or as they would have said then, Le Baron. And my great-grandfather and I were one day up in the fields, because he was a, a farmer, and I asked him about our family history. And he said the story in the family was that there were three brothers in France who were of some nobility, as the name might suggest. Two of the brothers fell in love with the same woman, and the third one conspired with one of the brothers to kill the third. They ran him and his wagon or whatever he was in, a coach, off a hillside, off a cliff, and he survived. So they fled France and went to North America. One brother went up into Massachusetts. The other brother went up into upstate New York, and they settled up there where they basically remain till this day. The third brother ultimately left France and went down to Louisiana, which was then, of course, a French area, and set up down in the Texas-Louisiana area where that part of the family still is until this day. So which brother you, are you from then? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what their names were. I'd have to go back and do some genealogy. And a, so a the lady in France. I don't know what happened to the lady in France. <laughs> she, she's just the, uh, the cause of the drama. So is Moriarty a Huguenot name? No, it's not. Moriarty, that's my father's side of the family, is a 100% Irish name. It's a very ah. old Irish name. It's the dear of uh, many other Irish names and Scottish names derive from it. Because I only know it through the Sherlock Holmes connection. Yes, or, or, or if you're The Goon Show, or if you happen to read uh, uh, On the Road by Jack Kerouac, Dean Moriarty. Those are the usual associations. People break down into the, the, uh, the three categories, but they're largely either Sherlock Holmes or a small bohemian group who reads Jack Kerouac and, and, and the beat. In the beatniks. Um, and of course, in Hong Kong, it's Francis Moriarty. Yes, it is Francis Moriarty. Yes, it is. Yes, Francis. Uh, which is how my, my grandmother and grandfather used to pronounce it. So, what did your parents do? What were their careers? Um, my father was in the army in World War II. He enjoyed the army. So, he came out, was in the U.S. reserves. The Korean War started up. He volunteered, actually, to, to go back in. Um, did get sent ultimately to Korea. We lived for a while in Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, which is a, a whole other chapter of my life someday I'll write about. Uh, it was a very sort of anti-antebellum era still in the South. Uh, it was it was still back in the 1860s in terms of mentality and how people dealt with one another and relationships. It was, it was a very different place, I think, even than it is today. But we were from the North. So coming from Massachusetts, you might as well have said, well, we grew up on Mars. You know, <laughs> people just dealt with you like you were just this, this really strange oddity. And of course, you were a Yankee. You know? There will soon be an end to this cold and wicked war. When those hard-headed communists get what they're looking for. Only one thing that will stop them, and they're atrocious fun. If General 
atomic bomb. Now over in Korea, our boys have fought and fell, but they died just like heroes amid a minute shot and chill. They had their hands tied behind them and were murdered by the score, by those dirty-minded communists who started this sad war. So my, my dad did that, and then he went to Korea. As, and what was he in the army? He was a, uh, a sergeant, staff sergeant. And, and then he, he went there, and he got sick in Korea. Uh, which is the beginning of a lot of health problems for him, standing around in frozen rice paddies, and it kicked up problems he had from World War II. So he was uh, air back to the United States. And then he worked a number of jobs, mostly in sales. And then uh, with his background as a veteran and the benefits you get from that, he went into the civil service and had a civil service job. Uh, and that's what he did until he passed away at a very young age. He passed away right about on his 44th birthday. So that was my father's side of the family. So how old you were you when your dad died? I was just I was uh, just graduated from high school. I was seventeen. And your mum uh, uh, stayed at home. My mother at at that point was staying at home, but she had a, a five year old daughter, my my sister. Uh, there was a big age difference between us, twelve and a half years, and she went to work in the General Electric, and worked in in GE uh, in Pittsfield, which is in those days one of the big plants. It's now Pittsfield. Gone. Pittsfield, Massachusetts, yeah. Uh, and it was one of the, the big GE plants. Uh, but when the electronics industry came and when they decided to get out of certain product lines and go for cheaper labor, they just moved lock, stock, and barrel out of Pittsfield and left 16,000-plus people out of jobs. So it was a big, a big blow for that community. I decided after I finished college to see the world. So I packed a little stuff in a small, tiny suitcase. So what was your date of birth? October the 14th, 1946. I was a true uh, ba- true baby boomer. Mm-hmm. The real, the first real baby baby boom. I was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Which and is then you a, went to Fort Ben? Um, yeah, later. I probably was about six when we moved down there. And I did basically the better part of two grades of school down there. So was it a difficult being a child there? I found it difficult being a child there. Not because there weren't other kids. It was just difficult to find other kids who would play with me. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. We were very discriminated against because we were from the north. We were Catholic. And that was a big no-no. And we had friendly relationships with black people. I mean, just normally friendly relationships, which would set us apart from some other people. So little by little, uh, kids were not available when I wanted to play. Now, that's very rough on a young child. Yeah, well, it it helps set you up in later life for thinking about what you think is right and wrong and how people relate to one another. When you finished high school, you're in America, you're 16, 17? I was, when I finished high school, I graduated in 1964 and then went off to a Catholic men's school in Pennsylvania for one year. Uh, I was worried about the draft, and a a priest helped me get accepted to the school to be sure I had some place to go. Give me an F! Give me a U! Give me a C! Give me a K! What's that spell? What's that spell? What's that spell? Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next 
Went back home and went to a local junior college. and Because, of course, you would have been at risk of going to Vietnam. Well, I was of the age to be at risk of going to Vietnam, but when I went out to Pennsylvania, where the drinking age was 18, that's a very relevant part of the story, uh, you needed an ID to show that you were 18, and the only ID anybody would accept was a selective service card, which is the draft. And I went down to the selective service office when I might sharply on my 18th birthday as required by law but also because I wanted to get an ID card so I could go get a beer and uh, and, uh, uh, and and the very nice lady working in there started asking me some personal questions and she said and how old's your dad I said well he he just passed away he would have been 44 she said oh he just passed away oh dear so you have brothers and sisters I said well I've got a sister uh, many years later I had a, a brother by a subsequent relationship with my mother but um, uh, at that time it was just me and my sister so she said oh so no no other boys in the family I said no no just me and and uh, she said oh was your dad by any chance a veteran I said well yes he was and he was in Korea and he was in World War II she said oh did he he didn't by any chance have any injuries or disabilities did he I said well as a matter of fact he had a number of them and by the time he died he was getting a uh, checks every month for being 100% disabled uh, although he could move around and drive and stuff but he had a number of ongoing ailments and problems and heart trouble and what have you and she said oh okay okay well I'll we'll be in touch you'll get your card in the mail so about six weeks later I get the card and I open it up to open up the envelope and I'm expecting 2s which means student deferment and instead it says 4a now anything proceeding with a 4 in those days was suspicious because 4F meant you had some sort of physical or mental impairment that prevented you from being able to serve. Your brain didn't work, your feet were flat, something, something was, was not good. 4A, nobody had ever heard of. And I went down and I said, what is this 4A? She said, oh, it means that you are the sole surviving son of a totally disabled veteran who died as a result of his disability. And here's your choices. Either you will never serve, you'll never be drafted into the military. If you volunteer to go in the military, you will never see combat. They will not put you in a combat zone. Or you can enlist to go into any military academy of your choice, assuming you can pass the entrance exam, and it, you'll get a free pass, a free education. All you need is a nomination letter from your local congressman. I decided that as I didn't have to serve in the military, as I had the deferment, that was going to be it for me. And over time, I became anti-war anyway. So uh, I went from being a very sort of pro-military kid to being very strongly uh, against... Uh, no, I wouldn't say I was anti-military, but I was certainly against the war in Vietnam. And I spent the next several years of my life very actively involved in anti-war movement and protests and organizing. Sing it. Come on. And it's one, two, three... stuff. Then I got a scholarship at Williams College in Massachusetts, which is a small uh, liberal arts school. I studied the usual stuff, liberal arts education, uh, American studies. And then later, I decided, as one would in those days, to pack my little bag and hitchhike across the United States to California. Ended up going to graduate school in journalism at UC Berkeley. I started my career in journalism. 
not in California. I worked on my hometown paper when I was in the junior college. I was writing sports, and then pretty soon they started... Is there baseball? Uh, I covered whatever sport was available at different times, so I decided to cover hockey, uh, which I never played, but I, I started... So that's ice hockey? Ice hockey, yes. So I started to learn how to... How to uh, Vaguely, what the rules were, and then I I covered some basketball, and I covered uh, baseball, and I, I covered college baseball. Occasionally, I would go over and see one of the minor league professional games because it was a, a baseball minor league uh, outfit in Pittsfield, Pittsfield Red Sox. And football. So when I was at school, I covered school sports and would go up and cover the football games and send the stories in, and and you know, doing the work of a reporter and I suppose budding correspondent. And, uh, I mean, do you remember, you know, saying, right, okay, this is the career for me, or did it just gradually develop? It just kind of came out and got me. I mean, if I go back further, I was in the eighth grade at St. Mary the Morning Star School, and the nuns were pretty good at picking out people and, and where they thought you might go in life. So a group of us were plucked out of the class and told that we were going to participate in the Massachusetts State speech festival. Massachusetts is the kind of place that would have a speech festival, right? And I said, okay, what category am, am I going to be in? And they said, radio news broadcasting. Yeah. So anyway, the nuns saw something that I didn't, and I ended up then getting a little part-time job. So, uh, not, they didn't pay me, but I, I volunteered for a local radio station, and the guy who worked there taught me how to start editing copy with editing pencil so you're kicking off as you say on a, a sports desk then you're moving on we we also started producing by this point i had graduated from college so which newspaper are you on now at this I, point? I was working i started on the berkshire eagle for which i'm again writing a newspaper column 50 years later a bunch of guys it was the anti-war period i just finished school and we were sharing an apartment together and we began producing an anti-war underground newspaper very much along the lines of rolling stone and what was yours called it was called the new leaf which suggested whitman it suggested turning over a new leaf and it also suggested a, a smokable leaf um, and all of all of these things were wound up in that in that particular title whitman Leaves of Grass, uh, Walt Whitman, America's arguably greatest poet. From Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. A child said, what is grass, fetching it to me with full hands? How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition, out of hopeful green stuff woven. Or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift in remembrance, sir, designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners that we may see and remark and say, 
whose, or I guess the grass, is itself a child, the produced babe of the vegetation. Or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic, and it means sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones, growing among black folks as among white. Canuck, Tukaho, Congressman Cuff, I give them the same, I receive them the same. And now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. Tenderly will I use you curling grass. It may be you transpire from the breasts of young men. It may be if I had known them, I would have loved them. It may be you are from old people, or from offspring taken soon out of their mother's laps. And here you are, the mother's laps. So we were producing an underground newspaper. We got visited by the FBI, which is always a high point in, in one's life. And, uh, uh, and I just decided that uh, I was working there. It was just time to kind of move on, and my girlfriend was ready to move on. And, uh, and so she, she took off and went across the United States to uh, California to be with one of her girlfriends. And I thought following me was a good idea. So I hitchhiked across the United States and ended up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, we ended up moving into a house that had a former fraternity house that had about 30 rooms. We had 23 refrigerators in the living room. And it was kind of run semi-communally with lots of dogs and, and uh, animals and of various descriptions and bearded people. And, <laughs> and it was called Toad Hall. 23 refrigerators. 23 refrigerators in the living room. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and, and they were shared. There were, there were two households to a fridge. Right. Yeah, so we had a lot of, a lot of people. Now, in those days, did you have long hair? Did you have a beard? I had long hair. I had a beard. I had a very full beard. Uh, photos exist of this period of time. One, one of the guys in the house was the dealer to one of the guys who played in Crosby, Stills & Nash <laughs> and Young. I had to be reminded sometimes to exhale. It was a very 70s period of time, yeah. And lots of anti-war effort, lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff involved. So demonstrations? Demonstrations, uh, silkscreening T-shirts that say peace now and all this other kind of stuff. And being a monitor for million people demonstrations, um, being one of the people that guarded the stage so that the various different factions wouldn't charge the stage and try to usurp the broadcast, you know, the, the, the event out in Golden Gate Park and things like that, yeah. At that time, were you working as a writer at that point? Yeah, I'd, I'd gone to out of graduate school to work on a chain of small suburban newspapers down in Silicon Valley. In those days, Silicon Valley was remote. It was beautiful orchards. It was a real paradisical garden. And it was just beginning to turn over into Silicon Valley. And people were buying out the orchards and chopping them down and putting in shopping centers. And it was the beginning of, of what is Silicon Valley. I didn't quite realize what was happening around me. I didn't really see the implication of it. So subsequently, I ended up down in Silicon Valley and working down there and doing stories about Environmental impact reports, which were a new thing in California, hardly anybody was looking at them. But I discovered that if you really took the time to read through them and you read all the little references at the bottom and the tables in the back, there were some great stories. So I started reading every time they did one of these big shopping centers, they had to do an environmental impact report or the plans for it. So I would read through and go, oh, look, if you pave over the road, the temperature is going to increase by three degrees. What happens if you increase temperature by three degrees? So I'd call up some guy who specialized in fruit trees or I'd call up some scientist and say, you know, what happens if the temperature go up three degrees? Like, oh, God, everything dies, you know, whatever. And, and so I was doing stories about 
noise and how you'd have to mitigate noise if roads went in and how you so have you're to build newspaper it. or radio at this point i was in newspaper my career in radio did not really start in in, in earnest till much later so i was doing print stories and uh i was the editor of this little weekly newspaper the cupertino courier the Cupertino Courier. Cupertino is the epicenter of the IT stuff in the United States. And I began doing these stories. And finally, the people who were the ranchers who were making money off selling the ranches uh, and, the, and, and the apricot orchards and all that other stuff. And the mall owners and the supermarket people all came around to the publisher and said, look, Mort, you've got a choice. You can keep this guy doing the stories about all the bad things that are going to happen and the butterflies and all this other stuff. But you're not going to see any of our advertisements. And that'll be it because we know that you rely on the supermarket ads on Thursday to keep, your, to keep your outfit going. You know, or you can get rid of this guy and you keep the ads. And he made the business decision. And I went. And that's when I moved up to San Francisco and I became ultimately the political editor of something called New West Magazine, which today is California Magazine. What were your musical influences? What were my musical influences? That's a really interesting question. Early stuff. My father could sing. He was a good singer. And so religious Catholic church music, uh, particularly Schubert's and Gounod's, but particularly Schubert's Ave Maria, that was, I think, my father's favorite, which he liked to sing. That would certainly be an influence. Early American kind of folk music, because my great-grandparents on my mother's side uh, had a little farm, and they would invite people over on a Saturday night, and somebody would play the piano, and my great-grandfather would play the fiddle, and, 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 and you'd, be, you'd be playing, you know, uh, a lot of old folk songs and Stephen Foster things and stuff like that. The sun shines bright in the old Kentucky home Tis summer, the darkies are gay The corn tops ripe and the meadows in the bloom While the birds make music all the day The young folks roll on the little cabin floor all merry, all happy and bright By and by hard times comes a knocking at the door Then my old Kentucky home Good night I hated Stephen Foster as a youth Today I really would like to write a book about him At the time because I I would like to play on the piano. And what interested me, really interested me, was atonality and, and what sounded to somebody else like cacophony. But I realized that sound was something physical. It wasn't just a, in a, an emotional thing in the air. It was as real as, as stone. And you could carve it. You could, you could, you could slice it. You could cut it. You, you could color it. You know, and, and, and I, as a kid, about, I'd say probably about six, Five six, you know, I was I would do these horribly sounding things, and my great grandmother would yell from the kitchen in the small farmhouse, you know, stop that noise, whatever. And my mother would come running in, and because she wanted to not have have harmony in the in, in the family, she and she would run in with some sheet music, and and just say, figure out where the notes are, and and it, it and it would be Stephen Foster, so it would be like Jeannie with the light brown hair, 
And I was supposed to sit there and try to figure out, dee, 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 you know, and, and, and I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. So those are some of my early, earliest, earliest influences. Can you still play? I, ne- I never studied piano. It was, <laughs> it was all, it was, uh, what I studied was trying to do the atonality stuff that really interested me. Uh, if I had gone my own route, I today would probably be some weird guy in a, in a, who wears black all the time and lives in a drafty hut and produces music that nobody listens to, <laughs> and that would that would have been my career. Um, but but instead of which, <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know. Can you imagine? Uh, I think rock and roll. Uh, I went one time. A friend of mine said, "This is 1955, 56, 55." A friend of mine said, "To so you about nine. Yeah, let's go to the, let's go to the movies. There's this really cool guy." Named Elvis. I had not heard of him. Didn't know anything about him. Went to the movie, and he he first appeared in in the in the movie in the distance. He was behind a mule, you know, plowing a field, and he looked like he was like three miles away. And all the girls in the theater screamed. And I went, "Well, that's interesting. I've never been to a movie where people screamed." And then, of course, he came in and he sang and all this stuff. What was the film? God, Love Me Tender, maybe. You know, yeah, I think it was Love Me Tender. And you love me, and 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 uh, and and I thought, well, this, this guy's pretty cool. Yeah. And so that was an early. And Buddy Holly was a, was another. Now you wouldn't go into radio until later, but did you? Were you an avid radio listener or not so yeah, much? I was a very avid radio listener, and like a lot of people, there's a secret society of us out there of about ten million, you know, who, who would sit in cars at night and listen to the radio. Because there was something in the United States, still is, called clear channel radio. So when they set up radio in the United States, they set up some stations that had, A, a lot of power. B, they wouldn't put any other stations right close to them on the dial. And C, at certain hours of the day, usually at night, when the system, when the signals would carry off the ionosphere and bounce for thousands of miles, you could hear these so-called clear channel stations clearly. So stations like WWVA in Wheeling, West Virginia was, was one of them. And you, you, you'd sit in your car and you'd pick up stations out of New York City and here and there, or sit in your bedroom and turn on the radio. One of my earliest memories is, is uh, I was very close with my uncle. He was 12 years older than I was, and, and he was my, 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 my best bud. And, and I'd go to his house, he'd turn on the radio, and we would listen to jazz coming from New York City. That's where I first heard, you know, Lena Horne and, and all these great singers from, from that era and Louis Armstrong and everything else late at night listening to the radio. It was like a secret society that you were tuned into. It was just you and these other people out there someplace listening to the radio. And and it's, so it had that kind of magic for me and a kind of intimacy which uh, I really I really, really like. And you don't get it. I guess you can get it off the internet. You put a headset on and listen to the music. You have some of the same effect. And Internet's kind of clear channel because there's no static that interrupts it. But you'd sit in your car in those days, and, and or upstairs in someplace, and, and we had a good, a good antenna or whatever, and you would listen to radio from all across the United States. And so you get exposed to to blues, to religious music, even sort of evangelical stuff, and early soul and gospel, and all of that would come to you through the magic of this signal that goes through space and time. Maybe I shall meet him.
My thanks to Francis Moriarty talking there about his American childhood and early campaigning. Next week, we talk about his stories and experiences in journalism, the assassination of gay politician Harvey Milk, the Jonestown massacre, Berlin before the wall came down, and his later career in Hong Kong. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>